Emma. I'm going to be reading our sermon reading for tonight. Um, It's from Luke chapter 22, starting at verse 39. If you have a pew Bible, it's on page 1639. And it's a bit of a chunk, so strap in. And if you have trouble concentrating, maybe as you're reading it, think about how you would feel or what you would do if you were one of the disciples, what, what your responses and reactions would have been if you'd been there. So starting at verse 39. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear, But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him, am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. Then seizing him, They led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. And when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, Prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, 
Are you then the son of God? He replied, you say that I am. Then they said, why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. Thanks, Emma. Good evening. My name is Mike. I'm a regular member, usually attending the 10 a.m. service. Um, and if you've been here with us for a couple of weeks, you might notice that we've been heading through Luke towards Easter. We've been following this kind of passion narrative of the Lord Jesus as he's resolutely set towards Jerusalem and towards his death and then his resurrection. Uh, but you may also notice that we've kind of skipped the first half of chapter 22, and that's not a theological choice, that's really just pragmatics about the availability of speakers, and partly because of the whole kind of um, COVID roulette game that we're all playing at the moment, and who's in ISO this week. Um, so next week, you'll be treated to the first half of chapter 22, but we're kind of, you know, skipping just to this later half, and you'll, you'll go back to it next week to fill in the blanks. Uh, keep your Bibles open there in chapter 22. I'm going to pray and then we're going to look through this passage and hear God speak to us, and especially at this time of year as we're headed towards Easter. The Easter story, I think, even has greater relevance and maybe even more pertinence for us in this day and age. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks, that you are a God who reveals yourself to us so that we might know you personally that we might become your children through the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that as we hear this Easter story, perhaps again for the thousandth time, that, Father, you would speak to us through it. Help us to see the Lord Jesus. Help us to see him as the faithful saviour that we need as unfaithful people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we have a link missionary with this church, uh, Kelly Nicholas, who's been over in Japan, I think, the last 13 years, maybe 15 years now. She's been over there. She was just with us uh, a few months ago before she went back to Japan. And uh, she taught me this Japanese proverb one time when she was out here on furlough. And the proverb goes like this. Maybe you've heard it. It says, the nail that stands out gets hammered down. Well, this is the proverb she thinks, actually, it's a Japanese proverb that really describes Japanese culture. The nail that sticks its head out gets hammered down. Well, it's all about conformity. It's all about staying together. No one stepping out of line. And I think, really, it's quite a vivid image of what happens when you stick your neck out and make a nuisance of yourself. Have you ever jagged your foot on a loose nail sticking out of a floorboard? perhaps those that live in old inner west houses with floorboards maybe, ever snagged your, your coat or your favourite party or flannel on a, a loose nail perhaps in the house and torn a nice big hole in it, right? It's that kind of nuisance. If you stick your neck out and you stand out against the status quo and cause a nuisance, if you stick out and cause trouble, you get hammered back down into place. And I think you might read this Easter story about Jesus and conclude that's what this story is about. Right? Jesus has upset the apple cart, he's rocked the boat, just to throw a few more metaphors in there, a little too much, right? and now he's about to get his comeuppance. Right? The Easter story really is just a whistleblower story, isn't it? 
Right? Jesus blows the whistle on the corruption and the hypocrisy of the religious and community power brokers. And now he faces their retribution as a traitor and as a usurper. Right? It's not a new story, the Easter story, in that regard. This story has been played out many times in human history and perhaps some people might hold the same narrative about more recent whistleblowers like Edward Snowden or perhaps Julian Assange, right? They've just stuck their head out and they've been hammered down by the government who wants to put them in their place. Jesus, perhaps, is the same. Just the nail that stuck out his head and got hammered down, or maybe quite literally got hammered to a cross. Well, it's, it's partly true, isn't it? I mean, Jesus did upset the apple cart. He did publicly challenge the religious leaders and the authorities. Jesus did kind of rock the boat, maybe a little too much. He did turn the understanding of ancient customs, very deeply held ancient and religious customs on their head. And Jesus did blow the whistle on those who used the law and the scriptures to belittle others and affirm their own self-righteousness. The death of Jesus is partly about the jealousy and the retaliation of, well, the status quo. They're the ones who contrive a reason to arrest him. They're the ones who pay a betrayer in his own company to betray Jesus. They're the ones who stir up the crowd to demand his blood. And they're the ones who pressure Pilate into ordering his crucifixion. And so I guess the question is, what does make the Easter story, the story about Jesus' death, any different from every other whistleblower story? What makes it any different? And why does Jesus get memorialised with his own public holiday every year? What makes him so special? Well, I think the big difference is that This is not how Jesus understood his own death. It's not how he understood the reason and the impetus of what he was doing. His death is not about retaliation for his socially progressive views. No, Jesus understands his own death in terms of his mission and in terms of his faithfulness. It's about his mission Because this is the task that the Father has committed to him. And it's about his faithfulness because, well, Jesus the Son alone is the one who is obedient to God the Father. And I think we see both of these in our passage today. So there are two basic points. First, the mission of Jesus and secondly, the faithfulness of Jesus. Let's look at the first of those. Jesus, we see, is not the unwitting victim of retaliation. He's not the unwitting victim of revenge. Jesus has spoken of his mission several times in Luke's Gospel. So, if you go back to chapter 9, verse 22, a pivotal moment in uh, Luke's Gospel, Jesus says, It is necessary for the Son of Man, that's himself, to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And then on the third day, raise again. And then, if you just go back a few chapters and a few weeks ago, when we're looking at chapter 18 in Luke, verse 31, he says, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man himself 
will be fulfilled. He'll be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. It's, It's no surprise what awaits Jesus in Jerusalem. Jesus has also anticipated both the betrayal of Judas, that's what we'll see in the first half of chapter 22, and also being disowned by one of his close disciples, Simon Peter. In the episode that unfolds before us, there is nothing here that Jesus doesn't know already. It's not a great plan of the chief priests and the Pharisees when Jesus expects everything that they're going to throw at him. And perhaps this helps us to understand perhaps his anguish, the anguish that we see in the Lord Jesus on the Mount of Olives because he knows his mission. He knows the Father's plan and he knows the way that lies before him. So when he goes to the Mount of Olives, verse 39, he asks his disciples to pray and then, verse 41, he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond the disciples. He knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus is not the hapless victim of a powerful conspiracy, planned in secret and executed perfectly. And he's not the hapless fool at the mercy of political machinations. Jesus is presented here as having a very real choice. He can obey or he can disobey the Father's will, the Father's plan. It's entirely possible that he could not go through with his mission. He could give in to that temptation right here, knowing all the hardship that lay before him. But then, of course, if he did, we would know that he's not really God's Messiah. He's not really the Son of Man and the Son of God. Because this, this is the path for God's Messiah. This is the path of exaltation for the Son of Man. And this is what it looks like for the Son of God to perfectly obey God his Father. There is no other way. This is the cup, says Jesus, that he must drink. Now that's some odd language, isn't it? I don't know if uh, you ever talk about your tasks or your jobs or your duties as a, a cup to drink. You get up in the morning and think to yourself, what cup must I drink today? Or perhaps, what cups must I drink? You could try it. Try it tomorrow. You know, what cup must I drink today? Guess I've got to drink the cup of taking the kids to sport. I've got to drink the cup of tidying up the house. I've got to drink the cup of going to the church working bee and picking up people's fingernails, perhaps. I've got to drink the cup of cooking dinner and hosting friends. That's the cup I must drink today. You could try and talk like that. See how it's received, positive, negative, or maybe they just think you're nuts. It's odd language to talk about a cup, isn't it? Why does Jesus use that language here when it seems to drop out of nowhere? The cup that he must drink. Father, take this cup from me. Well, we can tell from the context and the tone that whatever the cup is, it doesn't sound very gentle or easygoing 
at all. He doesn't want to drink. And there is a lot of symbolism in the language that Jesus uses here. In fact, if you just go back a few verses to verse 20, you'll see in your Bibles that Jesus there speaks of a cup. That kind of fills us in about what's going on here. He talks about a cup as the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many. Yes, this is a cup that will initiate a new covenant with God the Father and his people, but it's a cup that's going to involve his own blood and the pouring out of his blood. That's no dinner party. That's no easy chore or task or duty. That sounds really quite drastic. This is a cup that the prophet Jeremiah spoke about with a new covenant that would change our hearts, forgive our wickedness and bring us each into a personal relationship with God as children, as his children. But this new covenant only comes by the outpouring of Jesus' blood. This is atonement language that Jesus brings here. That's what you're supposed to hear when Jesus talks about this cup that he must drink. This is sacrificial language that Jesus borrows from the Passover festival, which he applies to himself in the middle of the Passover festival at Easter. That's what's happening at Easter time, even to this day. Jewish people around the world and here in Sydney are going to celebrate Passover. Remembering that time when God saved them as slaves out of Egypt and brought them into freedom to become his people. And how did he save them? By the blood of a lamb, which they painted on their their doorposts and houses so that when the angel of death came, it passed over their house. Seeing their sin was paid for by the blood of the lamb so that they might live. They don't sacrifice lambs anymore because there's no temple to sacrifice them at. But the Passover meal, if you've got any Jewish friends, is full of symbolism. And you do get to eat lamb. It's more appropriate really than even Australia Day, I guess. Right? The mission of Jesus is to drink the cup, the cup of God's wrath against all the corruption, all the evil and all the wickedness of humanity. And then to atone for that, just like the Passover lamb, through the outpouring of his own blood. It's any wonder that Jesus prays, Father, if you are willing, if you are willing, Father, take this cup from me. That's exactly what I would pray when I know hard things are coming ahead of me. If there's any other way, I'd like to do it a different way. Can you take it? Is it any wonder that Jesus needs his strength bolstered by an angel from heaven? Is it any wonder that Jesus prays earnestly in anguish to prepare himself for what he knows lies ahead? Crucifixion is no doddle. But isn't it a wonder that Jesus prays at all? I mean, where do you turn when you're faced with hardship? Where do you turn when you have a terrifying path laid out before you that you know you must go through? Isn't it a wonder that Jesus entrusts himself to the Father in prayer, praying, not my will, but your will be done. If there is no other way, then your will be done. I trust you. Isn't it a wonder that his prayer is answered 
with the appearance of an angel right at his hour of need. And isn't it a wonder that his anguish then drives him even more fervently to his knees to pray to his father? Because while the anticipation and anguish of what lies ahead drives Jesus to pray, the sorrow of the disciples and the prospect of their own temptation drives them to to sleep. That's what it does, not to pray. I'm so exhausted. Temptation, oh, so exhausting. I'm going to have a nap. Verse 45. When he rose from prayer and went back to his disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. How could I possibly pray? Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Follow me. I'm the one who's got to go the way to the cross. And here you are asleep. Pray. Jesus knows the necessity of the cross to save people like his own disciples who are unable to save themselves. They can't even save themselves from sleep. It's a necessity that spurs him on resolutely in prayerful dependence. And it's a necessity that is just reinforced by the pitiful impotence of his disciples. Now, who will save this ragtag bunch of disciples who can't even stand by their beloved leader in the face of imminent hardship and temptation? Who will save them when they can't even hold themselves up in the face of sleep? And the hard questions for us? Who will save us when we fail even our own standards of faithfulness and righteousness to those we love, let alone our own standards of faithfulness and righteousness before God? And who will save us when we're confronted with our own pitiful impotence in the face of death? What are you going to do to save your death problem? You can hide it. It doesn't actually deal with it. You see, this is why we need Jesus. This is why we need him to drink this cup, to go to the cross, to pour out his blood. We need Jesus to be our faithful saviour because we are unfaithful people. Here's our second and final point, the faithfulness of Jesus. And here we see a dramatic contrast with Jesus and every other character, every other person in this passage, and I'm going to walk you through them. Right, First, there is the mob, verse 47, who cowardly come to arrest Jesus under the cover of darkness. They don't want other people to see what they're about to do. It's shameful. And they come with swords and clubs, verse 52, as if Jesus is leading some kind of violent rebel militia and packing heat. Where in contrast, Jesus meets them openly and he speaks candidly like he has done every day out in the open in the temple courts, no less. There is no need for Jesus to operate under the cover of darkness. He's got nothing to hide. And then there is the contrast with Judas. We all know Judas, he's famous, verse 48, who deceitfully, duplicitly attempts to betray Jesus with a kiss and moves both between Jesus, hey, we're best pals, and also the conspirators, who are paying him 30 pieces of silver to betray his courageous leader. Whereas, what do we see in Jesus? No duplicity. He is single-minded and resolute in his course. 
And his openness is astonishing for the circumstance. And then, of course, there is the contrast with the disciples, verses 49 to 50, who are armed and ready to lash out with the sword. Did you notice they don't even wait for an answer from Jesus before lashing out? Should we attack with swords? Don't worry about Jesus. I've got the answer. Yes, of course. Off goes the ear. Jesus, how frustrated must he be? Children, calm down. These are the same disciples who are unable to respond with the the weapons, I guess, of prayer and just being awake. They couldn't respond with prayerful resistance against temptation. But here they're all too ready to respond with violence, something Jesus never does. Whereas Jesus, verse 51, heals. He heals even the wounds of his enemies who are coming to drag him to his face. And he offers no resistance to his underhanded lynch mob. And then, of course, there's the big contrast with Peter, verses 54 to 62, who only hours earlier pledged to stand by Jesus, even to prison and even to death in verse 33 of chapter 22, who now silently watches conveniently and safely from a distance. And three times disowns and denies any association of knowledge or knowledge of Jesus. Woman, I don't know what you're talking about. Man, I don't know him. Who this uh, Peter is driven by fear. He's driven by fear to respond rashly and dishonestly when his own life is under threat. And yet Jesus faithfully entrusts himself to the Father and endures the consequences of his mission as God's Messiah, knowing full well that his own life is under threat. And then finally, there's the contrast with the religious leaders themselves, verses 66 to 71, who hold a kangaroo court that defies even their own religious law and regulations, who have Jesus beaten in custody, verse 63, you're not allowed to do that, who plied Jesus with accusations to justify their premeditated conclusions. Whereas Jesus, well, he faces them patiently, calmly, truthfully. He doesn't play their games or give them what they want to hear. Jesus isn't trying to realise his own death wish. This isn't a suicide mission. No, if the religious authorities want Jesus dead, then they're going to have to conspire, lie and cheat and coerce and subvert their own laws and their own morality to do it. They themselves become the illustration of why we need a faithful saviour like Jesus. Because even the religious representatives of God's law can't keep it. These are supposed to be the, the cream of the crop. They're the best. They're the ministers. If you can't follow ministers, who can you trust? They're rotten to the core. Not only do those of us in the crowd turn on Jesus, not only do those of us who are closest to Jesus betray him in his hour of need and deny him, not only do those of us who mean well fail to respond properly to Jesus, but even the religious leaders can't get this right. Even those in the positions of power and responsibility for others can't be faithful to the Father's will. What hope is there? What hope is there if Jesus doesn't entrust himself to the will of the Father? 
What hope is there if Jesus doesn't drink this cup to save us? The only other alternative I think I can think of is, I guess, put my faith in the goodness of humanity, the UN, doves and rainbows and peace, or to put my hope in myself in particular, because I can't trust you lot. But if I'm honest, neither of those options really fill me with much hope, because I know myself and I know my neighbour far too well. I know that I could be any one of the characters in this story. And Emma actually did us a great favour by asking you to think about that as she read it. Because which character are you in this story? You know, I'd like to think that unlike Judas, my loyalty would not be so easily bought. I'd like to think that unlike the disciples, I would stay awake and I would pray and I would have a, a calm and confident trust in God, just as Jesus did. I'd like to think that unlike Peter, I'd not deny Jesus when my own life and liberty was under threat. No, I would stay strong. And I'd like to think that unlike the religious leaders, I would be faithful to God and his law and not turn a blind eye when it suited me. I'd like to think that I would respond like Jesus. Father, the road ahead is tough, but not my will, yours be done. But too often, I am confronted with my own unfaithfulness. Too often, I am confronted with my own cowardly self-interest. And I don't think I'm alone. So here's the hard questions. When you are confronted with your own unfaithfulness, where do you put your hope? When you despair at the unfaithfulness of humanity, as we repeat the same mistakes of history over and over again and we fail to do anything collectively or meaningfully together, where do you put your hope? Democracy? Just turn out and vote, that'll change the world. And when you see the faithfulness of Jesus, who drinks this bitter cup, who is obedient to his Father, even to death on a cross, then what stops you from putting your hope in him? What stops you from putting your hope in this faithful Saviour? Why wouldn't you want to depend on him rather than on your own independability? You see, Easter is all about the necessity of the cross for us to receive grace and forgiveness, to have hope in the face of death. You know, the Easter story could just be another story from history of a social revolutionary being squashed by the powers that be, just another martyr to fill the book of martyrdom. And it would be a worthy story, but a very unexceptional story. Yet the death of Jesus, this Easter story, is an exceptional story. In the face of death, Jesus is patient. Jesus is compassionate. He is reasonable. He is steadfast. 
and he is faithful to the Father's will to drink the cup for us. And that's because Jesus is the faithful saviour that we all need because we are unfaithful people. Let me pray that you might put your faith and your hope in the Lord Jesus as the only faithful and dependable saviour we have. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that Jesus entrusted himself to you, the one who judges justly. Father, we thank you that knowing full well the road that lay before him, his mistreatment, his unjust trial, his death by crucifixion, that seeing that road laid out before him, he prayed, not my will, but your will be done. Father, we thank you that he did that for us. And Father, we thank you that you vindicated his decision to trust you by raising him from the grave never to die again. Father, please help us to place our hope in the Lord Jesus as the only certain place for life, as the only one we can turn to as a faithful saviour. And we pray this in his name. Amen.